All right, we, uh, we're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke for Advent, but we're going to go back to the part that we skipped in August. So if you remember, I started with 12-year-old Jesus back in August, and so we skipped the birth story. Um, our goal uh, is the same. So as we are in the Christmas season, but I'm still wanting us to see the heart of God in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're still asking the same question. What is God doing? What does God want? You know, what's His mission? What's His purpose? What is He like? And so as we read, I want you to keep in mind this morning, this is actually the first story that Luke tells us. So even though we're doing it four months later, it's actually the first story in the Gospel of Luke. So keep that in mind. That's important. So verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So Luke tells us about this married couple, a priest and his wife, and he connects this couple back to the Old Testament history which is something that he's actually going to do over and over again in this story. He traces their family tree all the way back to the time of Moses and Aaron. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So in other words, Luke's telling us they were Old Testament believers. They were looking forward to a Messiah in faith. And they were demonstrating their faith through obedience. So if you remember Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's where righteousness comes from. If you're a believer, it was true for them. It's also true for us. Verse 7, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, who does that sound like? It should sound like Abraham and Sarah, right? So there's another Old Testament connection. We've been connected already to Abijah and Aaron, and now we're connected to Abraham and Sarah. So we have a priest and his wife, faithful to God in spite of the fact that they were old and childless. Now, just to remind you, if you didn't know this, in ancient times, a woman without a child was openly mocked by other women. It was assumed that she must have done something wrong and she's been cursed by God. That was the assumption. Of course, that's foolish, but that's, that's what people thought. And so what we have already in this very first story that Luke tells us is we have two things side by side. We have faithfulness and we have suffering. I want you to keep that in mind as we read this story. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God... 
when his division was on duty, so they took turns, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. Having been trained and approved as a priest, the lot fell on him. And so it was, it was really a great honor to serve in this way. It was probably the first and only time that his number would be called for this special duty. Okay, Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So if you know this, in the Old Testament, the incense actually was meant to signify the prayers of the people rising up to God as a pleasing aroma to God. So while they're outside praying, he's inside offering the incense that's supposed to go before God. Verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, it's understandable that Zechariah was afraid. So if you think about it, he was already nervous, right? He's he has now entered into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the one right outside. And he knows that his job was serious, right? Remember, priests have been killed in the Old Testament for offering the wrong incense at the altar. So seeing an angel, it's very possible that Zechariah is thinking to himself, oh man, I messed up. <laughs> I brought the wrong stuff. It's time. It's, you know, maybe that's what he's thinking, but he's afraid, and that's understandable. But verse 13, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What's the incense? It's, it's prayer, right? So your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, the name John means Yahweh is gracious. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And what that suggests is that John was, from his birth, under a Nazarite vow. So now we're being linked to two more people in the Old Testament, Samson, the guy with the long hair, right? And Samuel, whose mother was also barren, and, right? And so all three of these men were set apart by God for a special purpose. Those first two Old Testament men were actually, they were preparing the way for David. And so now this third man that God is bringing into the world, he is going to prepare the way for David's heir because Jesus was a son of David, right? Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so now finally, one last connection, the angel connects John to Elijah. It's perhaps the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And I want you to notice his mission, according to the angel, is to prepare the people of God. Now, in a sense, the Israelites were already, they were God's covenant people, but notice that they still have a need for repentance. So even though they already belonged to God in one sense, there was still this need for something to change in their hearts, and that was John's ministry, was to preach to them this need for repentance and to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So just as Abraham doubted the news at first that Sarah was going to have a child, so does Zechariah. And it's because it sounds too good to be true, right? But I love the Bible's honesty. I mean, Luke describes Zechariah as righteous, doesn't he? And faithful. But he's obviously not perfect. He's standing in the holy place. He's listening to an angel. And still the man doubts. Because he's human. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So God uses a rebuke as an assurance. He proves his power to fulfill this promise by taking away Zechariah's ability to speak. And basically he's saying, well, if one is true, then so is the other. And Zechariah gets the message. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the holy place. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained, remained mute. Now, I'm curious, how do you explain in sign language that you saw an angel? <laughs> I don't know, but somehow he explains this. And then it says, verse 23, When the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So reproach specifically because, as I mentioned earlier, to be a childless woman was a shameful thing in her culture, and so God answered her prayers and took that away. So, amen. This is the Word of God for today. And the first thing that I want us to do 
is I want us to consider that it had been 400 years since the people last heard from God. 400 years of silence. And all they had in that time was a book, really half a book. No prophets, no appearances of angels, no words from above. They just had this book that most people couldn't even read. And it was a book that ended with Malachi, whom the angel quotes to make sure we remember it's been 400 years since I last spoke. But God had obviously been at work over those 400 years because there are still faithful believers in Israel just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, think about where we stand. It's actually been roughly 2,000 years for us with just a book and the Holy Spirit working silently behind the scenes, and still, 2,000 years later, God's church is growing on the testimony of the gospel, the church going out into the world and spreading the gospel in every corner of the world, the church is growing. And I think it's interesting just to look at that, to think about that, to set on the fact that sometimes God goes a long time without giving us any new information, right? We just have to trust what he said. And there were people who did it then. There are people doing it today. Second, I want you to consider that God chooses to work so often in amazing ways through ordinary people. From the perspective of the other priests, or maybe the perspective of their neighbors, There's really nothing special about Zechariah and Elizabeth. But God loves using ordinary people. And he also loves answering ordinary prayers. This happens to be the hour of prayer in the temple. It's the time that was designated for people to enter into the temple courtyard and pray together. And what does the angel say to Zechariah? He says, your prayer has been heard. God is beginning the advent of Jesus by directly answering one prayer of one couple. That to me is absolutely amazing. You can trace the connection between incense and prayer from Exodus all the way through the book of Revelation. Revelation 8 teaches that God is actually going to initiate the end times because of the prayers of His people rising before Him like incense. Now, by choice, God doesn't have to do it this way, but everything God has ever done has basically been somehow involved with prayer. 
Prayer is an important, irreplaceable part of God's plan by God's choice. So when he says things like, you have not because you ask not, we should probably take him seriously, right? Ordinary Christians praying ordinary prayers. Our prayers are a big, big deal to God. So I want you to consider also that when God takes away Zechariah's speech, his ability to talk, who is the only person that Zechariah can continue to talk to until God restores his speech? God. <laughs> he can't talk to anybody else, but he can still pray. It's a big deal. Number three, I want to consider again the context that I mentioned earlier. So God chooses in this moment to speak to a man and a woman who are at this moment in their life, they are experiencing both faithfulness and suffering. And so often, I want you to know in Scripture and in real life for us, so often that is the life of the believer, right? A dear friend of mine who has been battling some sort of kidney disease for the past several months, they still don't know exactly what's causing his issue, but this week he sent me an update, and this is what he wrote. He said, I am as confident of God's love and presence as I have ever been. My wife and I are as close as ever, and I am not despairing over my future. But physically, he says, I'm in the same place I've been for the past five months, and I can't tell you how discouraging it is to write that sentence. I still don't know if I will ever feel better or be able to work a full work week ever again. And both things are true at the same time. And so often, this is where God meets us, right? This is what the Christian life looks and feels like. Both of these things at the same time. You're just plugging along faithfully, trying to make the best of it, and at the same time, you're suffering and this is where God finds us. This is what the Christian life so often looks and feels like. And we see it here in our text. But I want you also to consider the faithfulness of God. Something amazing is about to happen in the Gospel of Luke. God is about to fulfill His promise of sending a Messiah. And right now, in this moment, the way is being prepared. A couple thousand years of hopeful prayers by countless people, He's about to answer them. God will do what God says He will do. In His time, in His way, but He will do it. He will do it. I want us to look more closely at what this preparation looks like. And this is going to be an interesting curveball, okay? So I want you to bear with me because I've read this probably a hundred times and it wasn't until this week that I focused on this one part that I think is actually really, really important and I missed it. Verse 17, we're going to look at that again. It says, and he, 
John will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to, notice this, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That is a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, which is a prophecy about John. And I want to read that verse. I want you to see the similarity. Verse 6, Malachi 4. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, I mean, what does this mean? The turning of hearts between fathers and children. This is kind of, it seems a little strange. I don't know that you've ever really even thought about this in connection to the Advent story before. I had not. But it makes sense if you think about it. How did the original promise of a Messiah come to the earth? Adam and Eve, the promise of a seed, specifically a son, who would come and make everything all right. How did it come again? How did God give that promise of a Messiah again to the Israelites specifically, not just to the world, but to Israel? To Abraham and Sarah about a son a promise, right? How does it come now to Zechariah and Elizabeth? A son of promise. You understand, this, the Bible tells the story in many different ways. But one of the most important ways that the Bible tells the story of the gospel can actually be told through this lens the lens of faithfulness to families and more specifically of fathers and their sons. And I've done a lot of thinking about this this week and I'm convinced that this is something that we're not supposed to just read over and gloss over as just a, like a passing reference or a dot that's connected. There's something deeper going on here. If you look at Malachi 4, what God seems to be suggesting is that broken relationships between fathers and sons breaks the world. That there's this curse. Perhaps the greatest curse a land can bear as a whole is the broken relationships that exist between fathers and sons. And we should know this because we are living it out in modern America. I'm going to be a little bold and direct about this. You realize there are more than 18 million children growing up without a father in this country which is a little unprecedented, to be honest. Do you know these kids are twice as likely to die in infancy? Four times more likely to live in poverty 
five times more likely to commit suicide, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to experience behavioral disorders, and 20 times more likely to commit serious crimes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. Now that's a very significant problem. It's a very complicated problem. I understand that. But like every social problem that exists in this world, now and throughout history, it is in some way caused by a spiritual problem that the Bible calls sin. And it is a curse. And this is, of course, just one of many reasons why Jesus came, why we need Jesus. But it's the one God chose to highlight on page one of Luke's gospel. And I'm guilty of just reading right over it a hundred times and failing to make that connection. Why does God put it there? Because God wants us to see His heart for the fatherless. And it's all over the Bible. Psalm 68 verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, the gospel is the answer to many problems, but close to the heart of God is a promise of hope specifically to the fatherless. And the church is meant to be the place where this particular promise of the gospel begins to manifest itself. This is where Jesus starts to repair families. Now, what have we been saying all along through our study of Luke? What does Jesus want for us? What are we learning from this gospel? It's that Jesus has a perfect relationship with His Father, and He wants to bring us into it. God is our Father. We are His children. Now, there is certainly a good application here that we could make for earthly fathers, you know, encouraging men to, to stay and to love and to care for their children, to break that generational curse, right? But the best motivation to do that, the only one that really works, that doesn't just create more shame and guilt, is to look at the sacrificial love that we find in the Gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, died to break the curse of sin and death and to bring us into the family of God. And this is the Christmas story that so many need to hear, especially the fatherless.
Because there really is no joy at Christmas if that doesn't get fixed. God is your Father. And in Jesus, He says to you, You're mine. I love you. And I'm proud of you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for coming into this world, taking on flesh, perfectly doing every single thing that your Father asked you to do without hesitation, all the way up until the moment where you faced death on a cross for our sins. And even then you asked your Father, remove this cup from me if it be your will, but if not, I go. And he went. For the joy set before him, the scriptures say, he went to the cross that many sons and daughters might be redeemed. And we are those sons and daughters. We, by faith, are united to Christ and we don't deserve that. Not one ounce of your blood, not one drop of your blood did we deserve. But you paid a great price that we might have God also as our Father. And it changes everything. It really does. And so I pray for those that are wrestling and struggling with that truth this morning who have felt the sting of fatherlessness or any other curse that sin brings. May they find their rest in you. Their place. May they find their place in you. We ask you, Lord, to set this table apart from its common use as bread and wine and juice and make it a means of grace for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This table that is set before us is not a table that belongs to our church. It belongs to Jesus, and He invites all to come who have professed their faith in Him publicly. If you've not done that, um, then don't come because you'd be saying something is true that's not true of you. And so we will pray with and for you that one day you will, hopefully even today, profess faith in Christ. Amen. Um, as you come in just a minute, I'm going to do the, the institution, but just to remind you, the purple cups are real wine. The clear cups are grape juice. And I'm going to ask uh, in just a second Blake Shaw to come down and join me. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. After dinner, he took the cup and he said, This cup represents the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. We're going to invite everybody to come down the center 